This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 17, recorded on January 19th, 2015. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the Gallup Studios today here in Omaha, Nebraska. And of course, we post the show with world-class show notes out at theaverageguy.tv. And of course, we want to thank Gallup for allowing me to do this, uh, use their studios for this with both Ashton and Christian. Now, well, not Ashton yet, but pretty close here. And Christian working for Gallup, we uh, we want to say thanks to Gallup for letting me use the studios. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, of course, you can contact us via email to me, jim at theaverageguy.tv. You can track us down on Twitter. That's easy, uh, at Jay Collison. And now find uh, you can call in those questions as well, 402-478-8450. If you want to do that, we'll play those right here on the program. We want to let you know that TheAverageGuy.tv is now powered by Maple Grove Partners uh, Web Hosting. That's really Christian behind the scenes there. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting and people that from people you know and trust. For more information, you can visit maplegrovepartners.com. Com. And, of course, Cyber Frontiers is also a part of the Geeks Network. You can find the link to this show and many other great podcasts out at the Geeks Network, the Geeks Network, all one word, dot com. Joining, me, joining us today, and actually we're waiting for school to get back in session, uh, and so they're both in remote locations, but uh, uh, undisclosed, we'll just leave them undisclosed at this point, uh, is Christian and Ashton. Christian, uh, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, and it's great to be back for, wow, Cyber Frontiers episode 17, so almost in the uh, the 20s, and with that, we thought we would really get back to kind of some of the core roots of content we covered in earlier episodes that we haven't had much time to circle back on with all the work we've been doing um, on the software development, uh, big data side of things, so... Um, before we get to that, I do want to make a quick announcement that uh, Cyber Frontier Labs is now publishing uh, security alerts for public consumption. And these alerts are really just to help other web hosts, security analysts, and industry protect their network and encourage some of that threat intelligence sharing that we all know and love on the Internet. Um, most of this is being done out of my platform and is being used for some edge perimeter security and research analysts uh, work. So if you go out to cyberfrontierlabs.com, we're now publishing those as uh, InfoSec alerts. So go ahead and take a look. We're just getting started with that, so don't be quick to judge, and uh, hopefully we'll get something useful out of that. Uh, but turning to today's topic, we want to take a step back from technology for a bit and, um, of course, look at it through a different lens, and that is the cyber legislation aspects of what's going on. Um, in cybersecurity, I, you know, obviously all this stuff is relative to how our data is used, how our data is shared. Um, and there's not many people I like to talk about these matters more than with uh, returning guest, Dr. Jim Pertolo, uh, who's Associate Professor of Computer Science at the University of Maryland and is a longtime veteran of all things related to privacy and technology. Dr. Pertolo, it's good to have you back. Christian, glad to be here. Always a good time. For sure. Um, let's just get right into it. I, you know, last time we had you on the show, we talked about uh, the multidisciplinary aspects to cybersecurity and privacy, and we really didn't get time to dig into the legislative aspects, which I think are starting to gain a lot of momentum in the cyber field. 
and has really started to change dynamics in, in some regard. I think people are now starting to pay attention to it more. I think people are listening to it more. Um, but I still think that the average guy, so to speak, doesn't doesn't get it legislatively and isn't either isn't tuned in, doesn't understand or can't really get their head wrapped around what all is going on Capitol Hill um, with cybersecurity. So I just wanted to start uh, kind of build a little timeline of where we have been in the last 10 years with cybersecurity legislation, um, get some of your comments on that, and then dive right into some of the more interesting things that have been happening in the last year or two um, and where we're really going with that. Does that sound like a plan for everyone? Sounds like a big plan to me. Cool. Well, um, ho hopefully we can achieve it in an hour here. <laughs> okay. That sounds like a plan. Look, um, the, the you said 10 years is the timeline. That's not really adequate to capture really what's going on. Um, so to frame it, uh, look, the, 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 uh, the laws, the, the, the structures, the legal mechanisms that are at debate now go back even to the 60s in a lot of ways. Um, it's, it's a, a cross-product of legislation that has come up and a lot of case law um, as well. So there was the, the Privacy Act in the 70s, um, a lot of debate about um, uh, disclosure of government, disclosure of individuals and so on. In the case law going forward, so I think what you're really, um, rather than you know, make this a professorial discourse of uh, you know of the last century, what I think you're really talking about is uh, going back into the the heady days of the '90s when cyber became the buzzword that it was, remembering that it did not grow organically as a content field. This is the word cyber, <clears throat> it's a buzzword that came out of science fiction and got attached to big DARPA programs and um, kind of grew a life of its own there um, as a marketing mechanism. Um, that was starting to happen about the turn of millennium, and then 911 happened. And uh, in rapid order, it took about a month, I guess, to put together the Patriot Act. Um, can you remember what that is? The Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism Act. I think that was a jobs act for several legislative aides just right there to come up with a title. Um, so that's really what frames a lot of what goes on today when people think about the privacy legislation, security legislation, and so on. So since then, uh, and well, what does Patriot do, by the way? Almost everything. <laughs> so if you were to, you know, look it up on the web and, you know, you get page after page just of the, um, the sections of U.S. code that were touched by this, but it involves banking records, it involves telecommunications work, it involves modifications to the Privacy Act, um, it involves a bunch of secret stuff, not necessarily in terms of legislation, but in terms of the legal opinions that were behind the legislation. People started with what they wanted to do, crafted a legal opinion that might be able to color what was going on, and worked back from there to see what, what was the minimum amount of law, of, of legal lingo, that had to be crafted in order to justify the stuff that they were going uh, to do. We're still waiting to discover what a lot of these things really are, um, but it is, this is the kind of stuff that enables the federal government to take your flying on an airline, you know, a commercial airliner, as consent to give up all your uh, records and your uh, your utility bills and, and whatnot as part of the business of being able to check that you're not a uh, a bad guy. So there's a lot of stuff that is packed into this um, this bill, and of course pieces of it need reauthorization going forward. So far, it always pretty much has been. 
if not expanded every time it's been um, uh, done as well, or at least many of the times it's been been looked at. So that kind of I think that's probably what you're looking at when you say not just 10 years, but you know kind of go back to 14 or 15 years worth of of, of stuff. So is that the is that the starting point you want to work with there? Yeah, for sure. And I think we did get to some of the earlier, you know, privacy acts and foundation for privacy in the last show. I want to make that claim at least. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the first things, uh, quote wise, that really strikes me when we talk about the Patriot Act is from uh, one of the senior staff attorneys at the ACLU um, who, who says, quote, there cannot be a meaningful debate about these policies until the public knowledge of what is going on in the government is in what they're actually doing with our private information and that seems to be true when the Patriot Act was passed but it surprisingly still seems to be true to today and with the kind of advocacy that has gone on in you know post known revelation and what are the reforms that you know we as a as a citizenry want to enact in our government uh, legislatively it seemed like there was a lot of momentum there at first and that maybe some of that momentum is dying off uh, do you agree with that um, I, I don't know how much momentum there was even, you know, to begin with. There's, there's always been uh, pockets of, of resistance to some of the controls and disclosures, um, and there are always going to be people on the sidelines, probably like me, saying the train is going direct. Uh, be careful. Um, and, but I don't know that, um, uh, by and large, there's been a big mass of, of uh, public opinion um, and concern of this. Even the Snowden stuff. It got people's attention on the outside, but they were able to shrug that off and go back to looking at, you know, Angry Birds and whatever on their, their mobile devices. Um, so it's kind of bread and circus after fashion, or in this case, Facebook and mobile apps. Um, as long as the public has those things, I, I fear that a lot of um, uh, the attention that really ought to go into making good public policy um, really is lost. Um, so that's why, look, uh, the, the, this, the average guy network here is probably pretty important. First of all, we have to recognize that the readership that is out there, the viewership that's out there, isn't particularly average because you're paying attention to this rather than staring at Angry Birds, right? So um, uh, you're already becoming more informed and good on you for that. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd like to think that we could try to rabble rouse and get people's attention and explain to them how to make more informed decisions about privacy, about what advocacy they want to do um, to get behind uh, in policy. We keep trying. That's why I'm a professor, rather than, you know, living a poor life rather than going out and making more angry groups, right? So, yeah, and it it really is, I guess, striking to me that we have, you know, the the powers of what we got with the Patriot Act and what has been continually kind of mounting in this area of privacy, how our data is being used and so forth, it seems that in some ways when those, um, I guess, increase of powers came, came about um, with the Patriot Act, we weren't necessarily caught up technology-wise with ways to kind of uh, avert this and segment out I guess, industry, between government, between individuals. And there really wasn't, in my opinion, any 
feasible or easy to use technology that kind of define those boundaries um, as a as a country, really. And I feel like in the last year or two, that has changed a little bit. We've started to see, I think, one of the most notable things in this area from the technology perspective was when Apple came out with their iOS 8 and said, uh, we're encrypting the device uh, at rest. And that, uh, you know, a lot of controversy from FBI, local law enforcement, hey, Apple, you should really be giving us this backdoor to encryption first. And it was the first time I can remember in notable time, at least publicly, that Apple said, no, we're not doing this. And at least Google, with their Android operating system, claims to be following suit. Um, and yet it seems constantly that this argument between whether or not encryption is an effective, effective tool um, to kind of drawing the lines of privacy boundaries in both legislative matters and technology matters, is that really relevant? Uh, do you think that technology is helping inform and shape this discussion and have the encryption technologies that are available to the average guy uh, made it more easier or more difficult for them to kind of take the reins of their own data on the Internet? Wow, a whole bunch of topics you touch on in that, Christian. So first of all, focusing in just on the encryption aspect of privacy, because privacy issues are far more than just whether you can keep something private in the sense of, you know, the information not known to others um, or others. You know, the privacy definition, even in the federal government, um, has many different constructions. There are many different kinds of privacy that are discussed. So often we find people to talk about these things across purposes. So uh, just to illustrate that point, um, one definition of privacy that might be most people would think is reasonable is that you can own information, control it, and other people might not know it. I mean, does that sound kind of like a, a reasonable average guy kind of definition? That's not what the federal government typically uses, which is that um, the, the, the government may actually be able to know and have and use your information. They just have certain limits and pr procedures by which they would further redisclose it or perhaps non-disclose it on the outside. Um, so those are very different, you know, view, uh, you know, constructions of the word privacy. Encryption is just one of the pieces of the the the, uh, the debate. Now, encryption is something that goes back many years, not even just in terms of policy. Now, uh, so it's not just recent that a lot of debate has happened uh, about these things. You mentioned the Apple case. Remember that um, encryption was something that. Uh, in the early PC days and whatnot, uh, kind of horrified, again, with Microsoft as a big company in that case, um, the, the government, and so they had to find a way to make sure it could not be um, exported, how to keep this to ourselves, at least commercially in the United States, and they couldn't get legislation through on that. So the handy mechanism that was available to them at the time was they branded encryption a munition because there were already available laws to stop munitions from being exported. You couldn't send you know, certain kinds of bombs without State Department approval. You couldn't send nuclear weapons. You couldn't do all this kind of stuff. And so, well, you know, that's a pretty effective law. So let's let's use that to, well, gee, but this is an ammunition. Well, they, in a regulatory fashion, made it ammunition and then applied those laws. And so that's why for a lot of years you had, the domestic version of Windows versus the export available one, so you could have different kinds of um, uh, things. In it. So, so the debate about how to keep things private now goes back way before Apple. It's come in different incarnations um, and in different ways. 
Um, I hope you noticed after Apple came out with that announcement how quickly government and others recoiled uh, as well. And as a consequence, to now fast forward and back to your sort of original question about legislation, this is part of what we see potentially in the um, State of the Union address coming up just, what, tonight uh, or soon, um, and uh, what the administration is going to talk about. And in particular, one of the provisions that it seemed to be sliding in, it may or may not be in, we have to wait to see, devil's always in the details, um, but um, uh, a provision that will require that anything that is put out for encryption allow government access. That's a real concern uh, to these things. So if they can't, um, you know, just get backdoor by browbeating companies into giving up access, as they have, we kind of know most of the big players, um, then they're going to do a you know straight up uh, argument on this. Now that has been tried and failed in the past. There was legislation that ultimately was beat. I think actually was enacted and immediately barred and and then turned down because. Speech is something which you should be able to indulge in, whether or not uh, available to the government. All right, um, and I think there are lots of other nuances and reasons that I'm not a lawyer, don't play one on TV. Uh, but um, so this is going to be a, a rehash, I think, of that same um, uh, same kind of debate. Um, now, you know, fast forward then from the Patriot Act to the discussion about the encryption piece. Uh, there are many other pieces to the privacy puzzle as well. Um, you know, we also see the, um, uh, we've seen debated CISPA, the, what is that called? The, uh, I had a, I had made a post-it note, Cyber Intelligence and Sharing Protection Act, all these cool acronyms. Um, and there are other incarnations of this thing as well. That's been the kind of legislation debated in recent years. Uh, big recoil from the net. That's one of the places where we did see the community get together and really, you know, kind of push back on that. That's a privacy thing has to do with the sharing information of companies um, with the government as well, so the government can protect us. I'm a little hinky about the whole idea of begging the government um, to protect us. We should be taking more uh, for ourselves, but there's a lot of business interests involved in this kind of legislation. So we're going to see CISPA-like things come up in the Obama administration's uh, administrative package, potentially talked about. I mean, it's not a lot of secrets in general in terms of the headlines. He's been leaking it. To the press, you know, for the last you know two weeks or something. Um, so, uh, but we have to wait to see what actually comes into the um, the, the proposals. Um, there's a lot of business interest associated with getting something like CISPA through. Uh, we understand that. Um, a big piece of that is the indemnity. Um, you know, uh, the government doesn't actually have a lot of uh, uh, get, get a lot of information that. Uh, isn't already sort of in the hands of individual companies about potential exploits and whatnot. They're being a little coy, perhaps overly coy, about what they can share or not. Um, but they're holding out for more information um, as well. They already have the metadata, all the metadata, uh, for for uh, for these things. Um, how much more do you really need? Well, what they're going going after um, are the, the the corporate private information. On these things, now, you might think that companies don't have an interest in giving their corporate, you know, data out to the feds for to for analysis, and they don't. But they do have a strong interest in the uh, indemnity on this, by which um, if they share with the feds, if the 
new proposals like the old proposal, um, then they're kind of free from liability on uh, some of the uh, stuff. And again, they, they put the burden onto the feds to protect the company. Um, this is really kind of scary because now, again, what are the unintended consequences of sharing that data? Remember that since the Patriot Act, um, and the, the most prosecutions, in fact, the first one under the Patriot Act, were not against Islamic terrorists. They were not against violent criminals. Um, it had to do with prosecution on a drug charge initially. The bulk of that has been enforcement of uh, intellectual policy, uh, property law, trademark violations, knockoff products and whatnot. Um, so going after the business interest. Um, at what point in time does disclosure of corporate information to the feds as part of this CISPA-like thing become a mechanism for enforcement of DRM, hmm. digital rights? Um, you're now looking at, are they, do you have um, uh, music that's copywritten and protected but hidden on one network and not being, and they can find out, analyze? Um, you know, there's gonna, this is a real mess. The, un the unintended consequences of disclosure of these things, and never mind the issues associated with giving uh, individual, you know, personally identifiable information over. Just because it's called private information and will be ostensibly protected by the government doesn't mean, remember, that it's protected as we think it's private. It means as the government thinks it's private, which means that they get to know it, use it, and they're just going to not disclose it on the outside until the next Snowden comes along and releases it. Yeah, and I mean, it, it seems like there's two different avenues, too. And the argument that I see consistently in the last few weeks from the White House and so forth is that, well, the federal government just isn't big enough, doesn't have enough resources to do all this thing without the support of private companies. And, and I think that argument has been driving things like CISPA to basically say, you know, we're too small, we need to be collaborating. But one of the big I guess, kink points and the failure points for me seems to all be tying up into the Department of Homeland Security, where, you know, everything that they want to do legislatively seems to be having that, the, the central hub seems to be, well, this should be the responsibility of DHS. And, you know, as we all know, not only is DHS a bit underpowered technologically in that area, but they have a serious workforce problem. So it seems like some of the legislation also uh, moves to address that workforce problem. But more overarching, it, it appears to me that there are almost two different parallel avenues going on when we talk about um, some of these initiatives for government to work with um, corporations. On the one side, um, on the executive side, uh, there was a recent article that Obama and Prime Minister of Britain, David Cameron, um, have are basically saying they're going to work together and that, you know, in this, you know, after we had this terrorist attack on uh, in France, not unlike the types of terrorist attacks that we've seen in our own country, you know, these types of conversations have come back up on how we're going to uh, combat, you know, some of the cyber issues. And it, David Cameron basically just got up there point blank and said that um, we're not asking anyone for back doors into your technology. We're asking for front doors. And, you know, of course, these would be legally well regimented front doors. So that type of ideology seems to parallel what you're suggesting with, you know, well, if we can't get around it from the back way, we're just going to, you know, put it in a state of union address, make it public and see whether or not it it lives or floats. 
Um, on the Congress side, they seem to be much more focused on kind of some of the more, to me, mundane things. I mean, I think CISPA is significant, but they seem to be very um, self-tied up in the workforce issues, the reporting issues, the data breach issues. Um, are, do you see any areas in particular where, I guess, we're falling short in creating legislation and where we're over creating legislation? Because um, it, it seems to me there are some areas that we don't really regulate uh, as well as one might think we should be, and obviously other areas where people argue for overregulation. Yeah, I, probably I'm the last person in the universe anybody would guess would be advocating uh, for more government legislation that didn't even use the word repeal, I suppose. Um, I think that we're over legislating um, in, in, in a lot of ways, and you know, one of the classic ways we would risk doing this is going to be in the um, uh, administration's package that's going to be rolled out officially in the State of the Union address, um, we think. So what are some of the things in that and, and, and that package, and what are the potential overreaches? Um, well, first of all, um, one of my, that really concerns me um, as an academic, as a technologist, uh, and just as a citizen, is this business about um, uh, the extension of RICO. Now, RICO is not something that's a word that's come up in a lot of the recent discussion. Uh, some of us behind the scenes have been using it for a long time. RICO, what is that? It's the Racketeering Influenced and uh, Corrupt Organizations Act, right? It goes back to the 60s and legislation in 1970. Um, this is the legislation, the precedent, not in terms of technology at the time, um, that um, promoted the idea that, well, even though there are bad guys, we no need to get got and we can't get them by conventional means. You know, there's a, a mob a boss who says, eh, push a button on so-and-so and they get killed or something. There are buffers of indirection to stop them. We want to get these guys, everybody knows that they have to get God. So what we're going to do is create some fluffy, vague, you know, language about the conditions and the accoutrements and everything surrounding that person to show that they were in the racket, as it were, the racketeering, uh, they were in the business of doing these things. And so then we'll know, since we all know who needs to get got, this will enable people to get got, right? And so um, this helped very good officials get some very bad people off the streets, good on them. It also lets some very marginal officials do kind of a marginal job without having to work as hard. Um, you know, rather than have to make a case of uh, against somebody for murder, now you just had to show they were kind of in the business and somebody got murdered and, you know, the right things happened. I'm oversimplifying it to some extent. But this is the, everybody knows knows it when we see it, and so we're going to make laws to do that thing. That's terrifying. And so now when you fast forward, you probably see, you know, you can, you can look at and see a lot of different laws that have been enacted this way. Um, you can, instead of being charged with, as a burglar, if the police can't actually catch you, yeah, you could be charged for having burglar tools. Now, those might be the same tools that you as a tradesman, um, you know, carry on the back of your truck. It might be things that are back in the my suburban out in the driveway right now. Uh, not that I'm a burglar, but, you know, if, you know, if somebody wants to make a case, this is how they do it. You, they know who needs to get got, and maybe that's a good calibration on their part, but maybe it's just an attitude thing. Um, drug paraphernalia laws. Uh, became uh, enacted this way. Um, gee, the asset forfeiture laws. Gee, we know somebody's probably mewling, um, you know, dope, and they've taken money back and everything. 
um, on the highways, and eh, you know, we didn't actually catch them with the drugs, but they're carrying cash, you know, so we're going to arrest the cash. And that's where a lot of, we're seeing some of this in the news quite a lot recently now. Um, in particular, um, Attorney General Holder uh, rolled back, not all, but a great deal of the uh, policy um, for the federal government to, uh, to do this kind of stuff, because basically it became a business plan and for police departments to just stop people in the highways, in highway robbery, basically take it and dare people to go through court to, to get the money back. And, of course, that's a hard thing to do because you don't have standing. Why don't you have standing? Oh, what was arrested was the money. I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, and so I'm sure there's some, you know, universe where this all makes sense. Um, it's not the universe I live in. Um, so you don't have, since you're, you're not a party to that arrest, you know, standing to fight it back. It's a real hard process to, to go ahead and do. And they fight and kick and scream um, to, let, to, to, to avoid having people to get their money back. Um, and so it's not clear that this has much value in terms of public policy, public safety. Um, but, it, but, you know, this is the we know it. And so we're just going to, you know, let us do our thing and trust us. And this is now what's explicitly put into the Obama administration's package. Um, they want to have this so they can go after botnets and misuse of computers, um, um, the resale of financial data of uh, that was stolen of U.S. citizens. Yeah, you know, I don't want to have people's financial information stolen and misused and these things as well. But, you know, there's already laws against that, as it turns out. So this is kind of a fluffy overreach to let them do other stuff. I'm real, real pinky about about that kind of thing. But that's one of the major pillars of this package. That piece of it, I don't know, has a lot of potential on this stuff. I think the disclosure part, the CISPA-like stuff, has a lot of uh, potential. Remember that the House, uh, the previous Congress, Republican-controlled House, passed versions of this kind of uh, legislation. The PAC had pieces of these things in it. Um, didn't get through the Senate at the time. Um, so um, these are things which will probably be looked at favorably, these pieces of such a package, whether they want to give the uh, Obama administration um, an amount of cooperation is uh, an open question uh, politically. Um, but uh, that's, a, that's a piece of, of this kind of thing. I'm, I'm kind of concerned about that. I'm concerned about the encryption part. Um, I'm concerned about the kind of vague language about misuse of computers. Um, under this, a, if you look at the um, Electronic Frontiers Foundation website, uh, they point out a number of, uh, a place you should follow, by the way, I'll give a free plug, um, uh, that um, uh, uh, different misuse scenarios that might come up under this um, this package. And so if I, you know, set up a Google Plus account as, um, you know, Clem Kadiddlehopper in order to, you know, be more anonymous in using these things, um, that could be construed as a misuse and we know of actually at state level a couple of places where that kind of thing has explicitly been prosecuted. Not because it made sense, but somebody decided somebody needed to get got, and therefore they got them. Those are real concerns of these things. So giving more power to a federal government to do these fuzzy things, but trust us without the accountability, that's a real concern. That was pretty descriptive, I think. That was uh, helpful from my perspective, just to learn about the legislative, but I kind of want to segue into more of the education portion of, of this conversation that I know we've kind of had before I saw your last podcast, but um, I still want to come back to that because I think that's pretty important. So one of the things that is part of these policies that 
they're rolling out with the Obama administration is a, a large contribution to uh, increase education in historically black colleges for cybersecurity, which I thought was interesting that that was part of this and that there seems to be an initiative to get the ball moving with filling this void of, of uh, apparent void of skills in cybersecurity that is so badly needed right now. Um, so I guess the, the, the first question I'll ask on that is, do you think that just the, the, the funding is what's not there, or is it the lack of people who can teach this, or uh, what, what, what are the, I guess, what is the biggest problem in terms of education of cybersecurity right now? Okay, that's a good, very good question. Um, and there's a bunch of, uh, um, of, of, of big issues in this. The fundamental one, I, in my opinion, is that the field hasn't got a very good consensus on what cybersecurity is in the first place in terms of the education. First of all, in terms of the science. Um, remember, when you get a major in mathematics, in physics, in some of these STEM areas, um, these are rich areas with lots of history that grew organically, and, and they got names because people were doing this stuff, um, and then we learned how to do the science. Science is what? The ability to um, uh, compile information about an area, be able to model with it, be able to make predictions, have it be something which is true tomorrow the same way it is today. What's the science inside of cyber? We sort of don't know that. That's one of the major research areas. When you look at the research journals, even in the last year, there are whole editions of these uh, uh, periodicals um, of the, the, you know, the, the, the cutting edge of the field dedicated to trying to figure out, well, what might the science be? So if we don't know what the science is, all we're doing is be, uh, turning into sort of a trade school if that's what we just want to, you know, I mean, there's obviously a need to do this stuff. We can't let the absence of a science stop us from moving forward on, you know, valid content for the field. But the other, you know, so that's one thing which hobbles, you know, going forward. We have to do something. We are trying things. Um, but it's but it's tough because we can't fall back to some ground truth that lets everybody you know resync re where we are and we shared understanding right. Um, so then you mix into this the business interests. Um, so cyber was something I think I alluded to this early in this show. I know I mentioned it the last show. It's a made up word. Um, it came out of a science fiction thing. It was you know from one of the high-speed, low-drag government, you know, uh, uh, research agencies, DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, where people needed to have a cool moniker on top of something. And so that became used there. Um, they might have just, you know, used something from Tom Swift and his electric, you know, uh, boat or whatever. They happened to choose cyber, and they, it was pulled out of nowhere. It did not grow organically. It was a turn put on something, and then it grew. And, and you know, once one person used it with success, other people used it with success. And then once an agency uses a term like that, good God, watch the companies wait in line to show how they got just a bottle of exactly that elixir they're going to sell. That was the frame of you know the the, the market around the turn of millennium. And then again, nine one one happened, and no legislator, no official. No administrator, no bureaucrat was going to risk turning down a request to spend money on a bottle of that magic cyber elixir if there was any potential that the uh, for for want of that elixir, some other bad act was going to happen. So a lot of important stuff was done by good people with good intentions and sold to the government. But you know there was a lot of crap, and that was why to to this day we still have. 
um, you know, non-functional, weird scanning, you know, uh, things intended for airport sitting and warehouses because they don't work. That's why we have lots of software and systems out there, you know, uh, uh, burning a lot of resources and a lot of money that have never been validated ever or shown to work. It's why we have a lot of programs that have yet to find the first bad guy. And yeah, a lot of it's cloaked in, you know, the, the mantra of, oh gosh, you know, uh, if not for this, what would have happened? But the answer is probably, by the objective reason way, probably wouldn't have happened anyway. And they can't argue that this had any value to it. So this is the problem. So you mix in the business interest to close it back to your question. Um, and these companies will, uh, uh, you know, cloak a lot of these things. You, um, I, I, I guess I can't say the names of some companies that we know right now are pr promoting certain proposals um, based on new buzzwords, and um, it's going to cost you and I as taxpayers a lot of money, and I as a scientist have no reasonable expectation it's going to do anything other than pad the bottom line of some partners in a company housed up the road. Um, so that's the problem. So, so what does that have to do with the education? Um, those those companies are very concerned about the bottom line. There's two ways this affects you in particular, Ashton and Christian. Um, the first way is that you are being commoditized in these programs. When you take a cyber security thing, to some extent, even a computer science program with these things, um, the, the the mission of these companies um, is to get uh, low-cost pen testers, the, the, the easy skill sets, because those are what they need to staff, the very expensive big programs, some of which work, some of which do not work. Um, and, you know, if they pay top dollar for it, then they have less money left over for the partners at, you know, bonus time during the year. Um, and, of course, in this is a very surprising thing, especially for the state of Maryland, but specifically in Maryland, our governor up until this week, O'Malley, um, um, has gone along with the commodity uh, view of these things, which is to say, you guys can help drive the, the mission on these campuses as long as you guys are still there for me in my re-election or my, you know, successor. We saw how that worked out too bad for him. Um, and, and from Annapolis, there's not been a lot of flogging of, of, of officials on our campuses to be good scholars to codify what is the right content, what are the enduring skills and knowledge uh, uh, bases and practices and patterns of thought that we want to inculcate into our good smart students like you guys um, to go forward. Um, it's like, no, um, you know, the check cashed, therefore you guys can dictate. Um, that's why we have a lot of programs that are experience-based. That means we're like, we're cashing the tuition check. We'll let you, uh, the company, you know, train them to whatever the company needs are that will serve that purpose at the time. But can anybody argue that that program and that approach is going to serve those people after the change of another administration, um, after uh, 10 years? You know, there's still not the case that people coming out of cybersecurity training programs um, appear to move into leadership positions in companies. doesn't happen. So you're being turned into a commodity, um, and I think that's kind of too bad. This also goes true to, to an increasing extent in computer science education, balkanized program in the state, another whole, another whole rant. 
But what's the second way you're being sold a bill of goods? Going into a STEM field um, is that the same companies that are trying to get their cost margin down for cyber for short-term, I think, training to serve the immediate contracts. Um, the same companies are, of course, um, uh, begging the government for immigration reform. Your mom administration has been, of course, all too happy to have that um, discussion. And so the H1, um, you know, visas for pretty low-cost uh, foreign workers on these things to get the costs down. You know, you're being brought into a STEM track, not necessarily given the best possible education um, on these things. You are given short-term training um, to be put in a job market where you're going to compete uh, with uh, the cheap foreign labor, cheaper foreign labor, um, as any other commodity. So the reason I say this is surprising turn of events for a state like Maryland with a Democratic governor, you would think that power of the people, you know, strong pro-labor and whatnot, you would make it, want to make investments into people, um, have the companies make the investments into the training needs after they got well-educated scholars out of our campus to go forward. It would be more stable for the workforce because once a company makes an investment in some training, once the contract goes away, you know, they've got a little bit of investment in order to amortize that investment. Over, you know, they would keep that worker around for the next contract or something. No, nope, you're being turned into pluggable, replaceable units. That the contract comes in, you're hired. When the contract goes away, all those cyber trained pen testers are going to go away. And, um, you know, they're going to wait to bid up on these other things. So those are two specific ways that I think we're really doing it wrong and not taking the long view. Um, I think we have a data bubble and a work bubble in this. The same way we sort of had a housing bubble and the big market crash some years ago. Um, I think that uh, the same thing here where companies are indulging in this aggressive risk behavior. They're going to the government to um, get freedom from liability on a lot of the uh, things that they do. The Sony breach, they went to the government to pick it up. We talked about the privacy things and the Cisco-like things. They're going to the government to, to, to say, oh, you guys, you government guys, take responsibility for the training of our workforce so we don't have to make investments in people ourselves. It will all be cheaper and so on. And I think this is all going to come crashing down, um, you know, pretty quickly when we have way too many people asking, what's going on? Um, you know, I did all the STEM stuff. I did everything you asked, and now I can't get a job. What's the deal? So but I'm real concerned about your future um, in particular um, on these things. I think, I think we'd like, I'd like to see longer-term investments. I'd like to see more scholarship in these programs. I'd like to see the science done. I'd like to see the leadership recognize that the, uh, the things you do to make the best possible graduates from our program aren't just short-term training things, um, but in fact are activities, uh, engagement, um, content that stretch their brains, stretch your brains in such a way that not only will you be able to do the, the short-term training things, but you're going to be in it for the long term. You're going to be able to engage in the policy discussions. In fact, that's what I'd like for all of our graduates, especially at Maryland. Um, cyber, in your program's title, um, doesn't modify just security. Commonly, you talk about security here. But, you know, cyber, as long as we're going to use this buzzword that I've kind of mocked at this point, let's apply it to everything. I'd like to have far more content in the education about what computation is, what computational thinking it is, uh, and so on. And so 
all people graduating going into the workforce in Maryland or someplace else are better equipped to talk about the, the real policy stuff. So when we talk about CISPA, when we talk about RICO, what, uh, when we talk about uh, encryption stuff, yeah, maybe not everybody knows all the nitty-gritty details of these things, but, you know, they're able to, to, to grasp the big picture of it and make better policy decisions. That's my, you know, jousting at the windmills uh, kind of, kind of uh, view of what the education really ought to be. Well, do you, do you think a lot of that's been stinted because of do, – do you think they're struggling – to find students that can, I guess, handle the the learning curve? Because I think it's fair to say that, you know, computer science is not something that everyone thinks that they're intellectually up for the challenge, um, especially when you're at a, you know, large uh, computer science program like Maryland um, and the federal government is looking for tens of thousands of these workers to fill these positions for probably what we don't even have an enrollment in a computer science department, yet alone whatever we want to coin as cyber. Do you think this is kind of their attempt to balance the scales a little bit to make the numbers fall out? No, I think a lot of people are making pretty short-term uh, decisions that serve their interests, not necessarily the system's interest or the student's interest. Um, and there's not a lot of balancing um, going on. Um, a lot of the um, credentialing which goes on in industry, uh, I know from negotiating with some of the companies and trying to stand up uh, professional programs, um, has to do with just getting the credential. The price point for them is to what they would invest in on a campus for a program versus um, uh, you know to, to make a decision to go forward um, is only what the additional credential will let them be, um, uh, reap for that employee on a uh, federal schedule cost plus thing where, you know, the, t the title, the credential helps determine a comp you know, computation for how much they can invoice on that stuff. So the companies, um, some of which you guys have heard of, um, are um, basically not telling us by their actions that the credentials, the cyber credentials in particular, aren't things they hire people uh, for because they mean something in terms of the content. They're things they hire for so they can invoice for that person's time a little bit more. Um, and that that that's that's sort of what tells me from the industry's own actions. It's about the money, not about the scholarly content of what these people would do. So I think that the the the, the pen testing, the security stuff. First of all, let's recognize that from a cybersecurity point of view, we're using a Maryland-centric uh, industry, you know, myopic um, view of what security is all about. There's a whole forensics aspect, um, investigative aspect of this, anthropological uh, aspect and so on, that our programs don't deal with, that isn't being incentivized or discussed here, but I think is validly part of the um, the equation we look at as a scholar. Psychologists ought to be able to get into this field. Anthropologists should be able to get in the field. Um, different kinds of materials engineers ought to be able to get in the field without necessarily having to know about all these other things. Um, so what I suspect we will discover is that this field should grow organic, go back to growing organically through the component areas where we have people, help people become um, um, educated in the base sciences you know, computation science, material sciences, and so on, and then we infuse into them some additional perspective, which is the security component to help them talk. We need that. We need people with all these different scientific backgrounds to be able to come together, not just get trained so Northrop Grumman can go out and 
um, uh, you know, and, and make the nut on the, the, the next contract. And so from a – sorry, Ashton, go ahead. I just wanted to say that uh, based on what you just said, that kind of brings an interesting definition to what cybersecurity is. And you, you had talked about this before. The problem is because we don't have a an accurate definition of cybersecurity, we run into these problems with um, what it really is. So I, I would be interested to hear briefly, um, and then we can get back to Christian's question, just if you could try and define what you think cybersecurity is, uh, I, I would be interested to hear that. Um, yeah, I, w I wish I had a crystal ball to, t to, to have a, a good definition that uh, uh, would, sustain, would, would stand the test of time. Um, I'd be uh, richer and famouser and so on. I don't have a, a good one to, uh, to, to do this. I think it, uh, this, there is a, a, an open question as to what is the science. In my view, um, it's a it's the cyber security, cyber being computer or control stuff, if we pretend to give meaning to this buzzword that was just pulled out of the blue years ago. Um, it's going to be a computation science. Um, uh, it's going to involve um, uh, machine reasoning. It's going to involve you know a lot of these activities, um, not nearly so systems or net centric. I think as um, is 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 commoditized by the industry in Maryland and our and our programs here now. Um, again, there's forensic aspects of this. Um, there are user interface, and there's you know the valid piece of our business as computational scientists does involve psychology because it's called requirements capture, understanding human factors. Um, you know we don't make great software out of the blue that you can't interact interact with. So these are valid uh, in our scope of study. So probably my model of this would go along the along those lines. Um, and, but, uh, you know, it's not going to involve, um, uh, you know, a lot of short-term info about, uh, you know, how, how to uh, analyze the stack frames of just this latest release of this other uh, operating system and what the latest exploit is. That's actually not particularly interesting to me, and I don't think it constitutes science because there is nothing about that knowledge which carries forward past six months from now. Um, science is about information that is enduring, that is predictable, that is gives you an ability to model and 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 reason about something in order to drive new information, make a prediction, and then objectively find out what that is. What can you do about uh, 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 any of that based on looking at the the exploits uh, .net, uh, um, uh, you know, latest releases or something? You know, there's no science in this stuff. A lot of technology, to be sure, and maybe there's some principles lurking behind all that which would guide you how to proceed. Um, there's an operative way I can tell you how I proceed differently in an educational program, and that is um, to illustrate, at least from a software engineering, I, you know, remember I do software engineering chiefly in our, 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 our department, um, and that is how do we um, educate people about software engineering, remembering that engineering is now the application of science, not just the science itself. Um, we don't try to um, uh, train people based on the current languages and, you know, are you using SVN versus Git? Are you using, you know, bug trackers? Are you doing this or that kind of test coverage thing? We, we touch on a lot of the stuff and involve it along the way. But a lot of what we do for the, the education in the classes involves challenging students to engage in solving a problem where we haven't taught them the technology associated with these things. Um, we 
invo we invite them to um, figure out how to bow, you know bust their head against something and fail. That's my mission in some sense. I see myself as somebody responsible for helping our students learn how to fail. Not because we want them to be failures, but instead of just learning quickly how to apply out of a, you know the magic elixir out of a bottle for the cyber stuff to do the next pen testing thing for Northrop Grumman, um, I want that person to understand why we approach things a certain way. You know, what are the issues in this? What's the reason we, we did certain kinds of test coverage uh, evaluation or um, uh, design it something in a certain way? I want them to go out there with the gut feel um, for how computation happens. And then they're going to get the short-term nitty-gritty because they're going to understand the, the goals out of this science. That's the same. I don't see any of that happening in the cybersecurity programs right now. Well, thank you. I guess we can shoot it back over to Christian to ask his question now if he's ready. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, to put that all back in the context of legislation, do you do you think, <laughs> yeah, what a jump that was, <laughs> do you think there are any particular areas in which we need additional legislation or we need to move le remove legislation to balance the issues that are being raised about having a cybersecurity workforce? Or I guess a cybersecurity-enabled workforce, even. Um, yeah, I see. Hmm, I, I, again, I would be the last one to advocate more legislation unless I use the word um, repeal. Um, what I think it comes down to is leadership. It's a leadership issue uh, involving um, campus officials, involving the government um, uh, officials uh, holding accountable um, the campuses not to uh, serve the short-term industry needs. Obviously, it's a big community. They're part of the community. We want to have people to be able, community be able to go back and forth, but not in such sort of commercial craven ways. It's a leadership thing um, to be held accountable to the interests of the community of the state, in the case of a state school, and of the community at large in the nation. Um, we should not be thinking about how to train people for the next job next next month, but how to educate them to be good citizens to engage in good policy discussion about CISPA, about Patriot Act, about all these things we've talked about today, uh, going forward. Um, and uh, what are the gen ed, uh, you know, needs that people on a STEM track uh, should do? Um, that's, that's what I'd like to see. I don't know that legislation um, is part of that. If anything, the legislation I've seen involving uh, campuses, vet campuses, involves um, demeaning a lot of these goals. Uh, I know of no more effective way to devalue a college education than to make it like free. Um, now that's part of the <laughs> president's likely proposal tonight too, um, but um, uh, and that's not going to go anywhere for a lot of political reasons, but um, uh, you know I'd like to see that get out of the game and let people figure out what a college education is supposed to be about in the first place. Probably not for everybody. Yeah, for sure. No, that makes sense. Um, switching gears a little bit down the legislative uh, rabbit trail here, um, I wanted to touch base on, I feel like, you know, two, we've talked about two big um, forcing mechanisms that has spurred legislation on the Hill, um, primarily education and, you know, the privacy concerns and aspects. But 
one that we started to touch on with the encryption, but I don't think we came full circle on was, um, you know, what game changing technologies might be influencing cyber legislation in the future? You know, we talked about, you know, encryption. Does encryption really mean anything when, um, you know, a government tr might try and pull it back, but in the end, citizens can probably get their message out anyway. Um, uh, you know, we probably won't have too much time to talk about it here, but I, in the show notes, will refer to um, a very interesting story um, forwarded to us by Dr. Pertolo about um, how you get um, secret messages to the Colombian army without anything like encryption but a plain old you know amfm radio so you know if a message is going to be sent in my opinion it's going to get to its destination if you're smart enough to get it there uh, but there's definitely other technologies that are influence influencing the conversation and not just from a privacy aspect i think the big thing that we've seen in the last year or so has been um, the fcc's net neutrality legislation which is a very different conversation than privacy it's much more focused on how do we classify utilities is the internet a free and open place what liberties are associated with things you know and, and and can you even can you even say a utility or can we consider this utility to have values of liberty in our in our country and so forth so talk to a little bit about us uh, what you think is happening in that conversation particular to um, the FCC conversation and where we're going with that and maybe some other maybe your top two other um, technologies that you think are influ influencing this conversation? Sure. Um, I, I think uh, there's no question um, that uh, the mobile technologies um, and the interplay of them with increasingly important application areas is going to get a lot of attention in the, 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 the very near term. Um, in particular, we're going to use mobile devices for Medical applications, we're going to put more stuff, you know, in, in, in people's hands, in doctors' hands to be able to say what's going on. And the mobile devices in particular, the Internet of Things um, for watching patients in general, um, is going to become increasingly useful. There's already some terrific, terrific technology out there to, um, uh, to help patients and get some great outcomes. And at the same time, all that stuff, um, you know, there are companies that are salivating over the data streams they're going to get. Uh, because they have their own views of of how these um, these observations you can make about people in in real time. Remember that the observations that a mobile device can make um, when you authorize it to do so um, are things like uh, you know what is your your your, uh, the, your your heart rate? It can be it can be what is your activity? Are you being loud? Are you showing signs that maybe your medication needs to be adjusted? Are you show you know what are these 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 things can happen? But at the same time, these are also data that um, are commercially valuable to someone else. Um, it's a tremendously invasive thing, and it's all out there. We've done a great job as technologists, um, as as computer guys, as software engineers, of putting programming in a box. Um, anybody can now do this, and that's why you're able to have so many people pretend to be in STEM areas getting training to be pen tested, a bunch of other stuff, so they can make a lot of things that are cheap and easy. Unfortunately, we haven't done a good job of putting product assurance in a box. That's going to be how I close this loop out, which is um, uh, I'd like to see more work done on how to um, uh, deal with quality. Cybersecurity is only one piece of the quality pie. Um, there are many other things you want to have go right and work right in, in these things, the functionality, not just the, the non-interference and the privacy and, and availability and so on. So um, 
Um, that's one area that I think is going to get a lot of attention. It's probably going to get a special attention the moment that some spectacular oops happens with a mobile device and a patient uh, or lots of patients and so on. A lot of promise, a lot of, uh, a lot of issues. Uh, drones are uh, the, the mobile, the air, aerial devices, unmanned things. Um, these are going to be an increasing area. You're already seeing this a lot now. Probably going to the the FAA has continued to delay releasing information about their view of how the policy should unfold. Um, the um, uh, it's an open area right now above a certain level. The uh, the FAA has control um, close to the ground. A mixed bag of local law enforcement officials would be in charge and they'd have to scratch their heads to figure out how to apply which law in terms of a privacy or a legal thing and in between nobody's in charge it's a wild open uh, space um, and so that's an area that I think eventually some spectacular oops is going to happen which I mean that's too, it's too bad that that's how legislation goes forward right is you, you build um, policy out of headlines from CNN or Fox um, after something spectacular happens um, and, and that's kind of too bad. I'd like to have all my trained and, dare I say, educated graduates from Maryland thinking, you know, knowledgeably about these things to come up with good policies in advance and not just read out headlines. That's an area that I think is going to be, um, uh, is out there. Um, I'd like to, I'd love to see in terms of, a, a, let me promote in terms of the science of these things, um, modeling. How boring and how unsexy and unglamorous this is, but understanding how to go at the science underneath these things in such a way that you can be predictive of the properties, understand the unintended consequences, the feature interaction when you integrate a lot of these things. Um, that would be way, way, way cool. Um, certainly, creative people are doing this under the radar. Um, what would be an example of how you could do a mashup of technologies that people are not thinking about today that would be actually a cool project um, if I had some resources and and I got a lot of students, um, what, what what would be an example of something I'd do to educate people about modeling, about the new technologies, and it'd be kind of fun to screw around with. Um, I would set up something called and call it the Drony Express. What would be the the, um, the longest way you could um, the longest distance you could transmit some message, an encrypted message perhaps, um, from site to site without touching any of the rooted infrastructure? And I would probably have them use um, some some little drone. With the major limiting factor there, of course, is power consumption. So I'd make it a crowdsourced thing. Could I get a bunch of high school students, a bunch of college students, all around the the state, around the country, um, to uh, adopt a platform and uh, wirelessly hover one of these things to uh, to you know uh, one leg of the journey, probably a pretty short leg, but you can fly under the radar, literally so, um, not track anything. Until so you become in this Wi-Fi uh, distance of the next one who could pick up and go on, and you crowdsource this thing. Is it a weird protocol you have to use to send a big message? Yeah, because it's it's got to be fault tolerant. It's got to be kind of persistent in getting through. But, you know, we used to do that in the old days. Old guys used to do this on something called UUNet where we would relay messages, kind of like the radio relay league, if you did these things, and get uh, messages transferred that way. Um, what a cool mashup of technologies. Um, so if, if all and if all of your federal resources looking for, for secret messages are tied up with the internet and telephones and whatnot, this doesn't touch it. Cool. That's that's an example how I would 
challenge students to, about, to get educated about the modeling, about new technologies, have a cool project, and of course it's got something that flies or is robotic, which also gets attention. So uh, those are examples of things we do. It's a long ramble about a short question, and I think there are many more, but I don't want to you know, use up the rest of your night on that. Sure. No, that makes sense to me. Ashton, do you have anything you wanted to add, adjust, or modify to that? I think that was a pretty good summary. I'm good with it. Cool. I just want to thank Dr. Perdlow for, for coming on, for sure. Uh, a lot of good insight. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, before we wrap this, uh, Dr. Perdlow, I've got a question for you, and it, it relates to education. So, you know, we do a high school program around STEM here at Gallup, and uh, we invite 20 high schoolers to come to learn how to do software development, those kind of things. If you were to give me some advice on how we run our program, how I get those students prepared for your program, what kind of advice would you give me? I mean, what, what would you tell me? What should I be focusing on? What's important? Those kinds of things. Math. <laughs> how boring, but math. Um, the reasoning skills, the proof technologies, the, the counting things, um, this, this is, again, illustrates the difference between training versus education. Um, you know, there's it, it, there's an increasing emphasis in many other places, not necessarily your program. So I'm not picking on you um, to do what's showing flashy because we have to have the sense we oh we got to compete and gosh we're not going to look as sexy or interesting unless we're doing robotics or or, or cool things. Um, you know, but the reality is that uh, just in time manufacturing as applied to education, which is what a lot of these you know high profile programs are really about, um, kind of shortchanges the student because um, you know, we, we give them these authentic-looking research projects where they go through the motions of doing something, but any one of the core areas, I have to design something that's a robust protocol, or I have to do, you know, something deep involving the, 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 the uh, a computation of the energy density of my battery for one of these hovercraft or something. Um, they, students can't do this. So there's, you know, it, it's, it's obviously a trade-off to be reached between what's sexy and cool to capture the imagination and make make our students also saleable in the market, you know, um, versus what's the uh, the drill on these things go forward. Um, the number one thing that I've seen as um, as a dean for my college, as a chair of the undergraduate program, as an educator for 30 years, as a scientist, are the math reasoning skills, um, combinatorics, some logic stuff, some proofs. Uh, these are the things which stretch the brain in a way that leaves it receptive and able to do these modeling things. Okay. Good advice. Good advice to us. We'll, we'll have to add some of those things in. We, we, I have to admit, we come at it from a very practical standpoint of, of you know, we, we develop, you know, we need software developers. That's uh, an area for us in STEM that we don't have. And so we give them lots of experience in, uh, in software development. We do throw some problems at them that they, we, we encourage them to solve, right, from that standpoint. So, we want to come at it from that. But uh, it sounds like I might get a few minutes with you when I'm in Maryland here in a, in a couple weeks, and I'll probe you a little bit more, uh, a little bit on that, just to kind of drill down. Because we want to, we really want to model, I, I agree with you, we think, especially in the United States here, I think it's up to, in a lot of cases, it's up to corporate America to fill this need of STEM education at the high school level, because the a lot of the money is being focused on STEM education when we talk about K through 8. And really, that's K through sixth. In a lot of cases, our junior hires, seventh and eighth grade, are kind of getting left in the dust 
when it comes to some of that money that's true. spent. That's true. And, but corporate America's got to step up a little bit and start funding and start helping fund some of these real world experiences where students can come in and solve some yep. of these really hard problems at the high school level. So we here at Gallup, we're trying to model that and then take that model out and say, hey, look, guys, this is something you could be doing. And if we're going to fix some of our STEM education problems here in the United States, we think that's how it's going to be solved. But we're always open to suggestions about what to teach. So we've got some things there. Christian, let me throw that. Oh, go ahead. Christian, let me throw that back to you. Any other questions before we go? No, I mean, I think that's a wrap. I, uh, again, the the legislative aspect is so deep. I feel like one can only scratch the surface in an hour. So um, hopefully the show notes will be um, somewhat informative to you. Um, as, as our team would say, uh, do you have any go-backs when we're doing development? And one go-back I have to um, talking about the botnets in legislation uh, when, when the question was posed about, you know, well, we've kind of had this botnet conversation in our law before. Uh, one really great question posed on the Internet was, why, why is the government seeking authorization to do something it already claims to have authority to do? So I, I leave you with that question to answer for yourself. Um, I'm going to post a lot of notes. It's going to be probably the media show notes you've seen in about 10 episodes uh, to help you diversify your experience after listening to this episode. Um, as always, great having to have uh, Dr. Pertolo on to pick his brain about this stuff because he's been doing it far longer than myself or Ashton have been doing it. So uh, always a pleasure. Dr. Pertolo, thanks again for doing that. Again, I'm looking forward to being on the campus there. February, uh, I think I'm shooting for the 17th and 18th. We'll be on the campus University Super. of Maryland. and. So looking forward to that as well. Remind everyone listening to this program, of course, we'd love you to subscribe to uh, Cyber Frontiers. There's some amazing things going on here, and uh, this may be one you want automatically downloaded to your phone uh, and uh, listen to it each and every, I guess, every other week is what we're doing. And now you can subscribe. Just head out to theaverageguy.tv slash subscribe. That will get you every available. I have every way to do that. Uh, known to man, so there's no excuse for not getting a subscription. We want to thank you for using the Amazon affiliate link uh, out there at theaverageguy.tv slash Amazon. That helps fund things like new microphones and new cameras for Ashton and Christian as well. So we uh, we can send those their way. And now just a reminder, of course, what's going on at Maple Grove Partners with uh, with Christian. And uh, a reminder here that theaverageguy.tv is powered by uh, the, the, the uh, web hosting services over there at Maple Grove Partners. So we want to thank you guys. Uh, for doing that as well. Gary is on out there listening as well. So Gary, thanks for working with Christian on that to get those servers done. We'll be back in two weeks, back to the normal times, uh, 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern, out at TV live. For everyone listening, we'll say goodbye, everybody.